Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. I want to give a special thank you to Martin Bernal Hafner for his donation, for your donation, Martin. Thank you so much. If you guys want to learn about Martin and what he's doing with wine, I actually interviewed him for an episode. So just look back. His winery is Alta Orsa. You can learn a lot about what he's doing, which is very cool with regenerative farming in Mendocino and making some delicious wine there. If you would like to support this podcast and the work of spreading ecological and regenerative awareness in the wine industry and how wine can be part of the solution to some of our biggest problems, you can Venmo a donation to at Centralis, that's at C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S. It's associated with my name, Adam Huss, and it's greatly appreciated and will help me prioritize the enormous amount of time and energy that goes into producing each episode. Thank you so much. In this episode, I get to talk to the co-founders and winemakers for RAS Wines, Dan Roche, Joe Apple, and Emily Smith. Dan, Joe, and Emily make a dry sparkling wine from Maine wild blueberries. And we talk about some of the incredible aspects of this unique wine culture. Maine wild blueberries are one of the few fruits indigenous to and perfectly suited to the challenging terroir of Maine. Even though they occur naturally, thus the wild aspect, they are actively tended as a commercial crop. I'm fascinated by this kind of agriculture, which shows a way that we humans can integrate with natural ecosystems and be instrumental to their health and vitality while also using them to support our own health and survival. Working with and selling wine made from fruit that isn't grapes, and for which consumers have many preconceptions, has given Dan, Joe, and Emily some profound insights into wine. They want us to ask ourselves, is what we think we know about wine actually limiting our experience of it? They've realized how much we need to unlearn, and they are part of a domestic wine scene that is locally based, resourceful, creative, as diverse as the land that they make wine from, and, in my opinion, one of the most exciting parts of wine today. As they say, we don't expect wine made from Cab Franc to taste like a grape, so why do we have different expectations for blueberries? I'm excited to share these winemakers with you and the unique world of Maine wild blueberries that they're helping to share through their wine. Enjoy. Emily, Dan, Joe, thanks so much for joining. Welcome. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. It's very nice to be here. <laughs> you guys have a really fun project, and I'm really excited to learn about it. So could you just start by telling us... Uh, you know, what, what that project is and where it is, and then, you know, how you guys got there. All right. Those are good questions. So um, <laughs> I'll start and my compadres here can fill in. Uh, we started RAS Wines in the late fall of 2019. Um, and we are based in Southern Maine. Our winery itself is in Portland, Maine, actually in the, the city environs there. Um, we grow no fruit. We are committed to making wine from only fruit that is raised organically in Maine. And for that right now, at least, we're working exclusively with Maine wild blueberries. Um, and we can talk a lot more about what that, what that actual species of fruit is like. Um, and, uh, we work, well, when we started, we were working with two growers. We've now worked with a total of four different growers and in the state of Maine, which is 
um, surprisingly big for those who aren't who don't live here in the area. Uh, there are a number of different uh, wild blueberry regions. And so we work with growers from all of those different regions. Some are not even two hours north of Portland, right along the coast, basically, um, in an area called the Midcoast. And then um, it goes all the way up into an area called Down East, which is can be a misleading term because it's not really down anywhere. It's, uh, it's the far, far, far northeastern tip of the United States. Um, we work with a grower there uh, near, really right near a stone's throw from the border with Canada. So uh, we, we buy fruit exclusively from these organic growers and um, make know. wine. And we make wine. We make wine out of it. <laughs> and somehow we uh, press it into juice and it ferments. So it counts as wine. <laughs> so um, you also asked about how we get started and we could go into that more now. Or... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I would love to know sort of how. Um you formed this this troupe of winemakers uh, with your various skills and 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 what the values are really as much as how that happened. But you know, what are what are the values that have led you to want to work with organically grown fruit and and specifically these you know you know these blueberries? Yeah, so I'll I'll try to take that one. Um, <laughs> we basically all three of us met working for a kind of small local grocery chain in the Portland area. So Dan and Joe, I think started there. What year, Joe, was it? I started there in 05. Dan Maybe. came in in 07. 07, yeah. yeah so. so we all met like working in various capacities there. And kind of the focus of that chain is not only local produce, but like conscientiously created foods, you know, foods that are made to, I don't know, from from bottom to top be, you know, sustainably crafted, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, so we all <laughs> like living in that environment, got to know each other and all found ourselves there because of that kind of shared value that food should be something that is you know, made with care should come from land that is tended with care, you know, that, that it's more than just something you eat. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, also, I'll just jump in to say, with a real uh, strong focus on local farms and, and agriculture, so yeah. getting in as much as we could from uh, farms right around us. And Maine is really unique, because it has, it actually has like a small to mid-sized farm population like a lot across the country a lot of those kind of that size scale of farming is disappearing but Maine is actually a place that has a really really strong local agriculture sector um which is which is cool and I think something that definitely drew Dan and Joe here or kept him here at least <laughs> I grew up here but um but yeah so Dan and Joe were both Joe more so like very very instrumental in the wine buying program there he was the wine head wine buyer i think at the time that we ended up starting this company um and dan was general manager and i kind of wore a lot of hats from at one point being produce manager to marketing it's a small business so you end up doing lots um yeah but yeah so we all became good friends there and i think that the values of that particular company helped you know craft and bring us together around thinking about wine in that way and i think joe can you know, speak it, a lot more to the wine 
the the focus of wine there and how that kind of led yeah, to Yeah, I mean, uh, as as you, uh, you know, I just, I'm going to intrude here <laughs> just as you're about to go into no. that transition, hopefully give you a segue to talk about that because you aren't the first winemakers on this podcast who started in sort of, you know, co-ops or grocery stores and at some form that were, you know, the sort of that kind of local organic produce style of, you know, and had whole sort of first careers in that before transitioning to wine. Um, or, you know, even in farmer's market like this, there is this, I guess what I'm saying is this, there is a theme now for sure of this connection between working in produce and seeing where your produce is coming from and then making this connection to wine. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. I wonder if you guys have any thoughts about why the, why there might be that theme uh, among winemakers, especially doing the kind of work that you guys are doing. Yeah, I think you've set that up really well. I think that it's, it's obvious to us, by whom I mean myself, <laughs> Emily, Dan, but also you and, and plenty of others that um, when we talk about this sort of revolution that's happened over the past, whatever you want to say, decade or two, in terms of uh, people trying to pay a lot more attention to where their food comes from, the conditions under which it's grown and all of that, um, it, it's just felt intuitive and obvious to us that wine is a part of that. Um, it, wine is food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that historically yeah. it was that. Um, another thing we'll get into is, you know, how these distinctions we have among different fermented beverages are sort of a modern construct as well between beer and, and wine and cider and um, other, right. yeah, other ferments. It's like, it's all, it's all just, um, it's all just a but modern. It's much more fluid than that part. Yeah, that. of course. Yeah. And, but I think like one of the reasons actually, so in in heading up the wine program at this uh, small group of markets Emily was describing, it was sort of uh, over time rather frustrating that these people who are customers uh, and even people we know who weren't our customers or who bought food elsewhere, like paid so much attention to the food that they bought, but then they kind of wouldn't care about the wine. Um, so I think we took it on ourselves in moving the wine program along to say, even though uh, this was true. Our wines really were, I don't know, 95% from Europe. <laughs> they were small scale farming. They were people we actually increasingly got to know through our relationships with a, a small handful of really good importers through visits. We were lucky enough to be able to take to the, the wineries themselves in those wine producing countries in Europe. And we noticed that the relationships we had with you know, the chicken guy and our dairy farmers and our, our vegetable growers at this place in Maine, like those, the same attitudes were being expressed by these winemakers. Um, going back again, like to many customers, just not, it, it was just very hard for them to see that connection. Um, so we, yes, were bringing in wine that was shipped in containers across the Atlantic Ocean, but it was still made on that scale. Um, and with that, with that spirit in mind. And so um, there was, um, I don't know, we just felt really compelled to draw that connection more closely. That's not the only reason we got into this winemaking project. We love wine. But yeah, <laughs> that's one of the primary reasons, right? Is that we really love wine. And I think 
um, you know, people get into wine from all sorts of directions and you can get through it obviously just like gustatorily, right? Like this is my taste. I love this thing. You can get into it for as many winemakers as you've described getting into it through farmers markets and, and agriculture and that there are, you know, winemakers who get into it because they're chemists or they're engineers or like there are a lot of ways in. There are plenty of people we know who get into wine from like being poets and so there's <laughs> like the sort of there's the aesthetic component. There's, um, you know, if we can ever get Dan in here, I think of the three of us, Dan is the most intense just geography lover and like uh, in, mm. like obsessive enthusiast of what the globe is like and what movement over time by peoples and tribes and groups looks like and what, you know, how countries relate to each other. Like that's a huge part of wine. So yeah. People get into it from all sorts of ways. I will go back to what Emily said, like we love drinking wine, but when we decided, okay, here's this part of it that we haven't yet done, which is make it, um, how can we do that in a way where we're not buying fruit from a long way away, or even as some people do, you know, buying juice, like how can we do it truly respectful of terroir and we live in a cold climate in one of the northernmost states in the country you know like how do we yeah. do that how do we focus on terroir and so for better or for worse like we now have this fruit here that's been here for more than ten thousand years um and we yeah. can you know, talk about how the fruit got to be here but it was like okay we're gonna work with this fruit and see what it shows us about where we live do you guys know is it so i, I did a little research for for other reasons about the vikings first landing and they, they sort of came in Nova Scotia area not too far from Maine and declared it Vinland you know this whole mm, idea yeah. yeah and but I think it wasn't because they saw these wild vines I mean that might have been part of it but I think it was like berries like there were just there was this abundance of berries that they could turn into mm. wine do you do you know about any of that? Have you heard about that? That's really interesting. I the berry thing is probably true. I do know that when I've seen talk of Vinland and and those discoveries, that part of it was Vitis. You know, it wasn't vinifera, but it was Vitis. So right, of course it, was, it wasn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I think they were they were seeing not just fruit generically, but um, you know, grapes, actual grapes. Um, okay. But going back to, you know, this thing that I was saying before, like they saw a land that could produce something that would be made into wine, which at the time right. was not was not limited to grapes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, you know, um, I've actually swum to Maine. It's, it's not too um, long of a swim if you if you're swimming from New Hampshire uh, <laughs> across, oh, across the lake. <laughs> Wow, I thought you put a whole like Panama Canal kind of thing. No, my uh, my my father's from New Hampshire, and so we would spend summers uh, on a lake there, right on the border. And so I could swim to Maine. That was like the fun little thing. Now, and this does bring up one side of the boat. You swam under the boat, and you were in Maine. Like, <laughs> yeah pretty much no i mean it was it wasn't that big of a lake where i could like leap off a dock and it was probably only you know half mile or quarter mile across so at, at a certain place where I'm i think sorry. where we were yeah did I? yeah i mean it 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 you know i was young and 
it was all fun and whatever. The only scary thing is when you're out in the middle and it's super deep and then motorboats start coming. Then you're, you know. You're, That's why I was like, like boat traffic. My number one concern right. for you was boat traffic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and it is, uh, brings up the question, a very important question. Why don't any of you have the accent? Huh. Mm. That's well, Dan and I are from away. I'll let Emily speak because she's native. I don't know why I don't have the accent. Probably because huh. I, I I probably wouldn't be declared a true Mainer by by a true Mainer because my parents are not from Maine. Mm. So my dad is uh. from my mom is from Buffalo, and I think for that reason I'm I'm accent free. But mm. accents also to go you know, they're a little more rurally based here. And I am from okay. yeah. just outside the Portland area. So could be a little bit of that. I consider myself a Mainer for the record. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got it. And my, my final sort of local color question. <laughs> have you guys listened to Bert and I? Do you know you ever discovered Bert and I? Uh, no. What a treasure Wait. trove you have to discover. Um, check out <laughs> Educated. Yeah, just look up Burton. I'm sure it's now the recordings are on YouTube or somewhere like that. Um, but it's it is literally main humor. It, it's anyway, Burton and I, anybody you should guys should try it. It's it's a whole fun thing for you to do. <laughs> um well, when you have us back, we'll have the accents, the jokes, the whole thing ready for beautiful. You. <laughs> um so R-A-S, your last names, and I'm guessing you didn't do it alphabetical because it would be A-R-S, and that would not be <laughs> appropriate. Um, That's true. That's very true. That was a consideration. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Good. We came yeah. close to um, a couple of off-color LLC names. <laughs> but, uh, I love it. Doing business as R-A-S ones. Yeah. I love it. Um, yeah, well, so things are so tricky. We we kind of we didn't want to go with anything that was I don't know. It, it's such a hard choice to pick a name because you're it's like a very fine line to walk of not sounding too like contrived or yeah. or uh, I don't know, just insincere. And so we're like we wanted wines that were going to be timeless, and I don't know, and thought to ourselves that who we are is that's something that's constant <laughs> and that's yeah like, i don't know our values are what are behind our wines so why not just go simple and clear our initials our only regret is that people think it's ross mm-hmm. and there's nothing we can do about that <laughs> ross wait ross? like like ross wine ross. like they think we're rastafarians or they're no no <laughs> yeah that's what i was wondering <laughs> they, they read ross yeah, they just say, Raz. yeah, like okay. Ross, Raz, like people just don't. We have to. We've, oh, added, of... dots. We've added some dots yeah. between the R and New the labels have okay. dots. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we were inspired by Koss, the, um, you know, the um, Sicilian winemakers. Um, oh. And because uh, that's the, those, you know, those three initials are the three initials of the last names of the principals there. Um, and we just adore those wines. So, um, but you know, they're not COS, like they, people, everyone says costs about that winery. So I, right. I don't know. Yeah, don't fight it. You, yeah, you'll probably be fighting yeah. unnecessarily. It's not the, ba- it's probably not the battle that's worth fighting. Yeah. If people know you for that and love you for that. <laughs> yeah. 
probably so many other ones to fight in terms of you know making the kind of wine that you guys are making you yeah. don't need that one um and maybe not i mean how is your wine embraced locally and and in otherwise has it I mean, do you find that it's a struggle? Like, I mean, I still hear from cider makers that selling cider is very difficult. Are you guys experiencing the same kind of difficulty? Or or is it such a novelty that people are like, oh, blueberry wine, that's interesting. Let me try this. No, I, it's definitely a challenge. I think there's an element in being from Maine and having it be a Maine product that does help us to sell it, certainly locally and certainly during tourist season. But in terms of that, like year-round market um yeah it's it's difficult because there's a level of education that has to go into into the sale you know it's a new thing is it wine yeah. is it cider is it you know people are think a lot of the times because it's a fruit wine that it's going to be sweet um but it, yeah. it's it's very dry um and so yeah i think we're part of what we need to do and are working to do is to kind of get people to try it, <laughs> mm-hmm. educate people as mm-hmm. to, you know, what it is and, and kind of open their minds to the idea that wine is not something that needs to necessarily be exclusively made from grapes. Um, and mm-hmm. that's, I mean, we're fortunate enough to work with a lot of people, um, people both in Maine and, you know, um, a few other states that are working to kind of shift that mindset that people have around like what, what constitutes wine. And so I think um, in that way, we're fortunate because our timeline of making this wine and forming this company is kind of coinciding with a greater movement in the wine world, especially like in the States for a domestic wine um a domestic wine scene is that what i'm trying to say where where people are expanding like beyond vinifera beyond um beyond grapes into other beverages that have alcohol mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i love that uh, the only thing i would yeah. add is that it's you know um that the education process that emily is talking about usually in our experience also involves first sort of like a de-education or like a there there's all these right. pre- that people have so like before you can say try this or before before it can be like hey expand what you know there has to be a little bit of first take a moment to observe what you know and how it's sort of limiting your you know and like set aside whatever you think about when you have a prejudicial notion of fruit wines set aside like the notion of blueberries set it whatever it is you know I mean, people still sort of make nervous pancakes jokes when you like, oh, you know, like first open the bottle and it's like, you know, (laughs) like, you know what, like Cabernet Franc doesn't taste like a grape. Why would this wine taste like a blueberry? You know, Um, (laughs) that is really well. That's a great point that I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, (laughs) You mean people are like, is it going to smell like? blueberry pancakes when they pop the bottle or they're oh i mean it's i I think that there right there is a a history of wine from fruits um and in this country that has usually been or at least with a fruit like the wild blueberry which maximum bricks is like 12 or 13 so you're getting like you know six percent alcohol in a dry wine um that leads to a wine with whatever its flavors is sort of like texture wise, pretty, you know, 
I, maybe two dimensional is unfair to it, but you like thinner, you know? And so in the past, the way to deal with that has either been to capitalize it or to add sugar afterwards to sort of mimic a, you know, a 13% vinifera based wine. And I'll go further and say the people historically doing that, I think their personal tastes, as far as I know from, and there are exceptions, we can talk about the exceptions, but most people getting into it, making wine from wild blueberries, like their personal tastes are for, let's say, you know, Californian wines from a generation ago, like sort of over manipulated, um, big in body, sort of blousy, you know, like old school kind of crappy wine. And so um, those people who want like, you know, a Merlot from 1997 are going to do whatever they need to do to a wine from blueberries to try to make it mimic that. So you fast forward to us and and when we encounter people who are like they've had they've had those wines the sort of like faux merlots so they're like wait why is your wine not like that that's what a fruit wine is that's what a blueberry wine is like all of that kind of stuff so when i talk about i'm using a bad word but de-education whatever it is you know there's that sort of narrative that we need to dismantle a little bit before we can just say okay now blank slate try this wine I mean, I, I just, yeah, I think that's such a great point. I mean, I actually make that point when I, I give talks about my journey through viticulture and winemaking, that so much of it, so much of my, you know, learning is actually unlearning. You know, mm. so many of my, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, I mean, life is like that, I guess, a process of unlearning the things you thought you learned, you knew. Um, and yeah. so it makes, yeah, it makes sense, especially with, with this and, and with just, just getting people out there. I, I mean, I'm, I know that there is a, an audience for exactly what you're doing who love it and embrace it. Myself is included in that. And then there's, you know, everyone else because I'm kind of niche, you know, there's our, mm. our audience is kind of niche at the moment. Um, and I, my parents would be confused by this wine, <laughs> for example. Um, they would want it to be, yeah, they would expect sweetness. They would want sweetness. You know, they like a little sweetness. Um, we say that, by the way, we are great lovers of wines with balanced sweetness. Um, yes, me too. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, it's nothing against sweetness. Um, I think it's what you're talking about. It's it's sort of, it's against, yeah, the, the assumption. Well, I, I would love to hear more about, you know, just that, terroir where these are growing what it looks like i mean when i see pictures you know the few pictures on your website you know i think people expect to see i mean out here in california we have blueberry places that if anybody pays attention to them they they're these giant fields covered with nets <laughs> and um and then there's bushes on mounds you know and they're green bushes surrounded by brown dirt and if you look at the photos from your website it just sort of looks like a meadow with no bushes at all and it's red <laughs> can yeah. you sort of describe you know that process of unlearning as well what what it's what's it really like out there in the wild blueberry patches yeah well so the photos on our website uh we really love but they were taken in autumn so that's part okay. of them for the redness uh doesn't it doesn't look yeah. like june um but so this is um as you know it, it we we try to never say 
that we're making wine from blueberries. They are main wild blueberries. It's really its own fruit. So all of your experiences you're seeing in California or elsewhere, um, it's a totally, totally different fruit. Um, right. So the wild blueberry is truly wild in that it's not planted. It was, um, as we sometimes say, our, our vineyards were planted about 10,000 years ago by birds. Um, and that's yeah basically true like it's just wild and growing um they grow most people in maine know a distinction between low bush and high bush wild blueberries um yeah. and we work with low bush which are very low like you know don't come over your above your knee um just growing on the ground and that's part of their um how they develop to protect themselves against a very harsh climate is just to stay mm -hmm. low um and uh, the wild blueberry is much smaller than any cultivated blueberry. So if you get a supermarket blueberry, it's like that big plump thing yeah. um, that has quite a bit of water in it. And so the sort of skin to juice ratio of a cultivated berry is all wrong for winemaking. It might be nice yeah. on your cereal or, you know, granola or whatever. But, um, but the wild blueberry has a much, you know, a, a much smaller uh skin to skin to juice ratio and uh a really intense flavor um as i alluded to in my bricks comment it's it's sweet when it's a ripe fruit but it's got a lot of acidity um and so just naturally it, it has that sort of balance between um acidity mostly based on acetic acid and sugar um, and yeah, they just grow in these fields that here in Maine by the growers are called barrens, a really sort of resonant word, <laughs> uh, because, That's what the you know, as you're describing the, those photos on the website, like it does look sort of bleak, um, but it's not bleak. I mean, when you're in the fields, it's really cool, but it certainly doesn't look like a row of grapevines. So these are the blueberry barrens? Yes. The wild blueberry like, barrens of Maine. And this is... B A R R E N, not B A R O N, like. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah, personally like are very barren. You're the barons. We're with yes. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. B A R R E N S. Um, Got it. Yeah. yeah. That is fun. I love that. I, lo I mean, that's lovely. I like that uh, idea. It's cool. One of the, uh, I mean, not to keep going on the website, but those. No, please do. I, I have more questions. Pictures yeah. are taken at this, uh, this farm we work with. That This is the one on the Canadian border. Um, and those, like, if the camera panned a little bit to the right, you would see the Atlantic Ocean right there. On So wow. like, it's right on that rocky coast. Um all of all of that land um, came into existence as glaciers receded. Um, so they are called glacial moraines. And uh, yeah, it's just the ice receding as the as the earth warmed up a little bit about 12,000 years ago. And um, this is the fruit that was well suited to it. And if I remember correctly, I mean, they they are well suited because the, the soil is extremely sandy. Um, it's extremely acidic. Is that correct? Or, or am I ro extremely rocky? <laughs> uh, what is it that, why are, why do they thrive there? What is the, what, how have they found a niche? Um, at least for me, I think we're getting to the very limits of my geological know-how, but I think everything you said is, is correct. Um, it's actually, uh, depending on where we are, it's, it's all granite based. 
but the, the but the but the topsoil is sometimes sandy and sometimes clay based. So more sometimes more inland it's it's clay. Um, okay. So, but everything else you said, I think is is completely accurate. I, but I just don't know. Yeah, as I say, I don't know. How, uh, I don't know why, botanically speaking, a wild blueberry, or like botanically or chemically, I don't know why this fruit is well suited to soils of this nature. Okay, um, it's but you're right, very acidic soils. <laughs> yeah, it would be considered a, a poor soil, a, a marginal soil at best, in yeah. other forms of agriculture. Yeah, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Hence so it's kind of. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, there nothing else grows there, and so it works out. Right, there's blueberries, but all all it is is rocky, big, big old glacial erratic rocks that are left behind, and, and very little topsoil, just sand. And yeah, nothing else grows there except right. So rocky, in fact, that most of the fruit we get uh, cannot be machine harvested. Um, so, and it's the right. the word. I mean, it is harvesting, but everyone here uses the word raked because they are raked off the bushes with hand rakes. Um, there, you can do some machine raking of, um, of the flatter fields, uh, right. many of which have had mechanically have had rocks removed. But as Dan is saying, yeah, it's a lot of bumpy, rocky, um, just hills and dales. And, and I guess what I'm getting at is this seems a really great example of a plant that is adapted to this extreme uh, and poor environment for other crops that you guys have uh, are showcasing how to turn it into something transcendent and beautiful. Um, and that, you know, I don't know, there's something really lovely about that. You know, there's, uh, you know, being able to use marginal land for wine to me is, is a really good use of marginal land. Um, and I, I, I don't know if you have any comments about that, but I, you know, it's just something that I admire and, and find really, uh, fascinating especially about this little niche of the world when we when we first were developing business plans and launching this project the sort of 10-year goal was to have planted vines in maine for grapes um start with blueberries and use that as a springboard um and that's totally off the table but the more i think we we've learned about the industry of blueberries the the history and just the story and the place i think it spoke to us in the same way you're sort of remarking upon is that it's just like what a perfect like example of something that you can use that that doesn't tax the you know the climate that is naturally there that's existed for so long it's kind of a good story and it's an interesting thing to do and just it fits Maine and if if we can make some people like then it's all the better and you know and we're not you know we're not using like not planting or using any resources for that it's just there and it and it is weathered the changes in the climate and history and time for 10,000 years. So it's adapted and it's, it's there and yeah. it, it should That's... be used. And unfortunately it's, it's struggling. The industry is struggling. And so there need, there's, there's needs to be more sort of viability and mm-hmm. adaption by the people that are using the land to keep that industry alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's well, and, and you're part of that, right? Yeah. We're trying oh, yeah. to, yeah. Yeah. Oh, to tell the story. I, I and I want to say like, it's, um, <clears throat> Uh, it's very kind of you, Adam, to have said what you've said about our project. But 
it's not as if we're the first ones to do something with, with this amazing fruit. You know, if we weren't here <laughs> dying, because there is an industry that rakes those berries and those berries are, uh, you know, consumed. <laughs> and we can talk a little right. bit more about that. But, um, you know, the, the fruit has been used, I mean, obviously, originally by the indigenous people of this land. Um, and there are still indigenous uh, Wabanaki tribes people who do do some of the um, some of the, the tending and, and growing of wild blueberries. Um, there is this industry and we're just sort of, um, you know, coming along to do our thing and participate in it. Um, the wine industry is part of what we're helping to sort of really grow. But the wild blueberry industry more broadly was here, you know, a long time before we got here. Sure. Yeah. No. And I, yes, I don't mean to uh, give you undue credit, but I, I do like what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I know other people are making wine from the blueberries as well, but um, yeah, yeah, you know, true. it's, and, and, and it is, uh, I, I, it's part of the story. You're, you're part of that story. And I, I guess that's what I'm saying. I really like to draw attention to these, the fact that you're part of a story that's much bigger than you. And in a way, what you said underlines that, that you had this initial thought as I think many of us do myself included of, of, I think, you know, wanting to, you know, maybe impose is too strong because it comes from a good place, but we, we have an idea of the kind of thing that we want to do in a place. And over time we begin to realize, Oh, you know, that's just my, you know, my ego, my, whatever it is that is so much less important than this, this thing that is, millennia old that i am fortunate to be able to participate in that you know transcends my lifetime and you just become you you stop seeing yourself in this in uh, impose you know i hate to use the word impose because again i'm not saying not to critique that because i think we all intend and impose and we all tend and, and impose our our wills and and can and can do so beneficially on nature if we are careful and thoughtful um but you know, it's it's this different thing of listening versus bringing your own intent to it versus listening and finding what the intent of that land is. And I think it seems like you are going through that process. Um, yeah. So that's more what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. No, well put. So I would love you guys to talk a little bit about, you know, what that winemaking process is like with the harvesting. I mean, if I understand correctly, uh, you're you're pretty much, since you're making a sparkling beverage with this a dry sparkling beverage uh, are you doing anything to it besides i mean i'm sure you're doing a lot to it <laughs> anyway let's talk about your winemaking i was gonna, I was gonna say i don't think you're adding anything at all right it's just blueberries that end up being the ingredient that makes your your beverage yeah correct um <clears throat> this there's the start is when the harvest occurs we get in touch with our growers and farmers and we bring our fermenters to the farm and blueberries, they they pick them into these 20-pound boxes. And so there's just pallets of 20-pound boxes that we dump into the fermenters. And they're about just shy of a ton fermenters. And then we bring them back to the winery. <clears throat> and then the first thing we do is we just jump in the, the fermenters and stomp them. Just move, uh -huh. get the juice flowing, move them around. And we do that maybe a couple times. And then first vintage longer maceration second vintage shorter and this year was a little bit shorter than that so it started 30 days which was it ended up being too long uh the second vintage was about two weeks and then this past vintage that we finished in august would average about 
maybe seven days so a week maceration that's the f- oh and that's the fermentation as well like that's before pressing essentially from that's from before, crush to press. yeah so that's yeah that's before pressing so we just let them we stomp and did some pump over and some stomp down and we just left them in the fermenters for an average of seven days um the big issue is we have to get to the farms and we only have so much space and only so many fermenters so we have to sort of manage the our space and how we're using it so some fermenters get pressed early some a little bit later so we can get empty fermenters and go back to the farm and pick up more fruit um and so yeah so about at seven days of fermenting on the skins and which just takes off naturally once we jump in and stomp them it seems to get that going pretty quickly and then yeah and then we press um just like a i don't know the size but a large bladder press and, and that's it and then it goes straight into just neutral vessels and that's and sort of the fermenter it. the fermenters aren't connected to any temperature control or anything they're no just, everything, yeah. is, everything is yeah they're just we wish. These, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah they're, they're called safe oh. yeah they're just like sl- like insulated large plastic they're used in the fishing industry a lot for bait and uh, for lobster got like that got it these aren't but, used yeah. are they we're no, natural. no, they're, they're not only used by blueberries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, got it, no got technology, it. Okay. No technology whatsoever there. Yeah. And even after we press, we're pressing into just no tech vessels hmm. at the moment. Got um, it. And so it's no, yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. Just and then do you a bit high on the fermentation, but yeah, we don't control that at all at this point. Well, I mean, you're talking to somebody who's fermenting outdoors in Los Angeles at times when it's, yeah. you know, 90, 90 degrees. So I think you guys yeah. probably have cool fermentations relative yeah. <laughs> to that. Yeah, true. I mean, the fermentation, fermentation some, yeah, our fermentations sometimes get done in three days, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. These fermenters are so, they're so well insulated that that can be good and bad, but it can get pretty hot, but it can also keep any, if fruit is like picked on a cold day, so it can insulate, and we can get pretty high temperatures or pretty low temperatures. We can we can slow the fermentation down, or at least slow the starting of it. Um, but yeah, there's nothing added. The only time we add anything is at the um, when we bottle, so our tirage. So we add a few grams of sugar per bottle. Or oh, per okay. Week. So you you're not using uh, more blueberry juice to restart the fermentation. No, we, you know, we kick around these ideas and we've talked about it, but we've yet to, to get into that. Like we've yet to do any R&D on that. So we don't quite know yet, but it's always a conversation. But when it does come time to bottle, we've yet to take that step. Yeah. We, yeah, yeah. we, we hope, we hope to get there. With, yeah. Uh, but we have had some conversations with champagne producers that yeah. have, have toyed around with other sweeteners and have come to the conclusion without any real scientific like backing up but just from you know experiential uh is that that sugar seems to provide them the best flavor after from after mm-hmm. secondary fermentation but we haven't tried anything else but yeah so right now it's just organic sugar got it yeah yeah i've, I've done a little of both i yeah i'm i'm torn i don't know if i've i mean i've done such extreme different things like i did orange juice was one of my wow i mean i fermented orange juice and then added orange juice to oh. to uh oh. to, yeah. to re-ferment um, and it worked out really well, but I couldn't tell you if it was significantly different than the the sugar ones that were done that way. Um, and we're we're <clears throat> our hope is for our our wine Arcadia is to avoid disgorging, and so we're sort of anxious, uh, anxious enough about hitting that sort of bullseye that allows us to get enough 
pressure in the bottle without needing to disgorge. Yeah, without a ton so of. We're sure of... we have a better understanding of what that looks like. And then yeah. every time, every time we've experimented, when you get to that point of the year in late winter when you want to experiment, you can make bottles with blueberry constant. Or we haven't, but every test I do with sugar, even you don't really understand the result of that test for a couple months, and you don't really have a couple months to wait when it comes to bottling. Um, because one, we're not using any yeast. We're not doing a yeast addition. So we sort of, if I do a test run of bottles and I wait two months, I don't know what the, the activity of that yeast in the rest of the wine is two months later. It might have changed enough to alter what the outcome would be. Um, right. And so How sugar long... at least allows us That's to... A... If you don't mind, I mean, if if you don't want to like share proprietary secrets, that's fine. I But I'm very curious if you're willing to share how long do you wait uh, after you know the juice goes dry before you do the tirage? Um, we're doing it in late March, early April. Oh, and when are you harvesting? Of the same. Uh, so it depends. Years differ the last few vintages, but in August, either this year was oh, early. Wow. But so part of that, the juice, the juice has been still for a while. Then, like, I mean, yeah, it's been. But it's again, been like nothing. that, that bullseye we're trying to hit is like just allowing the. The sediment to settle as much as possible to clarify the wine um, right right no i totally get that yeah so you're letting it settle and then you're even after all that time adding sugar it re it just referments it kicks off it has so far yeah, yeah. <laughs> right right <laughs> gotcha. two vintages in <laughs> right well that uh, yeah, someday you may end up with a still sweet wine, which would yeah. be lovely, lightly oh, sweet. Please, <laughs> dear Lord. <laughs> yeah, so it's just that, <laughs> that that mark of like the goalpost that's moving of like, have we clarified? Has it settled enough? And is the yeast still active enough? And then picking that right amount of tirage to not, you know, not leave too much sediment to then have gushing bottles. Um, our first vintage, we we went on a our tirage was too high and we ended up having to disgorge after we'd already released the wine and labeled it. So it was all, not all of the wine, but a, a fair portion of the wine was on the market and all of the wine was labeled. And then we ended up having to buy it all back and disgorge throughout the summer, like to order. Mm. Oh, wow. We'll send four, you some photos. Four cases of... a day in our backyard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've been there totally been there <laughs> i i i don't know if you've had the experience yet i don't wish it upon you but where you've uh over tiraged or you yeah and then you basically have a bunch of leaky bottles that when you disgorge you lose like more than a third of the juice because the pressure is so great it just explodes but uh yeah just yeah don't we it, have leaks a, but we were definitely losing wine on upon a large volume yeah. of wine <laughs> yeah 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 so what is the what what is the wine like then? I mean, I know I I think everybody should just try it, uh, but I would love to. Well, actually, I have a question before you talk about what it tastes like. You mentioned it was high in acetic acid, and that would seem to be like for us, you know, in the grape world, like a VA a potential issue. Can you talk about that? It's an issue. <laughs> okay <laughs> you have to be on top of it yeah yeah I mean, dan talked about how that first vintage we did like you know roughly an average of 30 days on skins before we pressed the fruit the the main problem with that was it just allowed a quite a bit of acetobacter to build up 
Um, and, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't, the problem wasn't as much as it might be with other fruit, like, um, oxidization because Uh wild blueberries are so naturally high in antioxidants that oxygen really isn't quite the issue. It's that, it's that, yeah, all that acetic acid just had more time to build up. And I think that wine, which is the 2020 vintage, um, and still available in some markets. And, you know, if people wanted to, it's, it's available for sale on our website, uh, along with the 2021, some people still order the 2020 because they like it. Um, but it definitely, um, you know, betrays the, the VA. Um, so yeah. as we went forward into 2021 and now just a month ago with 2022, reducing reducing the um the time on skins doing a little more pump over sort of being a little more active um in turn you know just to to keep the the buildup of all that acetic uh to keep that at bay yeah. uh was definitely yeah. definitely so yeah i mean that's where i i would imagine uh co2 management comes into play where you again if you're if you're waiting that long amount of time then you've uh, a lot of that co2 is blown off in the right. fermenter and you're, you're getting a lot more oxidation, which is great for acetobacter yeah. um, versus keeping like a, a CO2 blanket on. Is that what you're finding? Yeah. Like we're keeping it CO2 rich is part of that early, you know, making these moves earlier in the process uh, helps keep it a little more CO2 rich before it goes to, to tank where, you know, where it will be a little less exposed oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the, um, shortening that time in the fermenters is helped with the getting the fermentation starting quicker and leave and and then leaving them in the fermenters for a short period of time helps us helped us with the uh the acetic also just you know just learning from mistakes and and keeping topped up more um and then we're using we use argon now in the tanks to top up or to keep blanket on top of the the wine oh nice okay which we're just starting to experiment with this vintage Mm -hmm. Um, and then we're also toying like we're not probably going to do it now but just what when we actually bottle because the earlier we bottle the less risk we have obviously um but then again it's that that target of like yeah the clarity the clarity target yeah exactly and right now though again like so so unlike if we were working with grapes you know we would be harvesting later into the year where the temperatures would be coming down naturally outside. But because we're in August, our harvest is in August, where our ambient temperature in the winery is higher. So the wine itself is not being brought down to like cooler temperatures after fermentation right away. So hopefully in the future, we have the opportunity to get better equipment that would allow us to manage that time when it's, you know, still August and still 85, 88 degrees outside. We can right do a better job of getting the wine down to a, a healthy temperature right now it's that management is includes opening the garage door in the morning <laughs> <laughs> or at night and leaving it open when it's 55 degrees out so then you know naturally right. you can, which is a much more sustainable option than, <laughs> you know, right um, but uh, yeah i mean we imagine uh the summers aren't going to get any cooler for a while uh so yeah probably need to yeah i mean that's definitely something i'm thinking about a lot now too that temperature i mean because temperature again does increase that oxidation rate increases the you know acetobacter proliferation 
potential. Um, and it does. Yeah. And if you're, if you're harvesting warm fruit, especially, I'm sure the, the, the barons are getting baked in those, those days. Do you harvest like, you know, the way that grapes get harvested like early morning or sort of trying shooting for the coolest part of the day or night harvesting? I guess you probably would be insane to do night harvesting with blueberries. They just harvest throughout the day. Yeah. I mean, okay. that, it's, it's out of our hands at that point. Yeah. Um, I Got mean, we, it, it, I mean, now we get into issues that I'm sure you're facing as well of like labor has gotten really hard, you know, especially during the pandemic, but even now. So it's like to tell, you know, to finally like get their crew all ready to go and then say, no, actually, let's have you wait until 9 p.m. Uh, you know, might. Well, and what those those crews, what they're picking for, 99 percent of what they're picking for is going to mm-hmm. a freezer line, a pack line where it's just going to get frozen within a day mm-hmm. and then it. the one the tiny one percent is going to retail like to um fresh pack they call it so those people will farmers like market. drive down to the farmer's market every other day during the month of august and those blueberries are being sold within you know two days of being picked and consumed within four days of being picked so it's not mm-hmm. they're not harvesting with any broader yeah. scope than that mm-hmm. not right. certainly not what they grape farmers would be thinking it's right just, yeah it's, it's immediate consumption or immediate freezing mm-hmm. and so nobody has the capacity to keep fruit cold or to really manage a crew in that way here mm-hmm. by it. the way the numbers that dan just gave you were not picked out of a hat it is truly 99 percent of all wild blueberries that are picked go straight to the freezer process um so we're working with amazing the that's left wow so there's a great potential for growth company's mission is just a big you know make it two percent yeah. right right yeah. <laughs> um could, could you i mean if you were buying from the freeze packed blueberries i mean would that change or alter you know this the concern for temperature and stuff like that i mean what if it what if it like you just the intermediate step before it came into the winery was it went to the freezer? We <clears throat> we've tried that once and it did not work out. If we failed, um, the okay. we we could take steps to give ourselves a better chance of success, but just that that um, the time it took to defrost and then get to a temperature where we could get a healthy fermentation was long, and then that fermentation was not healthy. Um, right all that the wild yeast was either killed by Spent the freezing it. or yeah or the things that sleep. and then the things that were awake sort of when it started to slowly come to temperature were were pretty active and ugly mm-hmm. um, right right is, not not the, not what you wanted yeah the one winery the other sort of sparkling blueberry winery in maine bluette i think they do use some frozen fruit but i think they basically go straight to a large commercial press and sort of like a press that gets very hot because it's just so active and i think it sort of presses and defrosts the berries at the same time but we don't, Got we don't sort of have access to that nor are we sort of interested in that um right right yeah uh, yeah so we should definitely shout out to those guys i mean so blew it it's b-l-u-e-t they were the first to really you know attempt a, a quality-minded wine from wild blueberries especially sparkling well let me change gears let me ask you what is it? I mean, I have a couple sort of just final questions. How is it that there could be 
organic i mean why does okay <laughs> how do i put this um these are wild blueberries so when we say when you guys say they're organic fruit are they actually certifying like an entire farm and then they're just not doing anything to it so it's essentially what was already there and now like the owner of that land has certified the land because they can because they're not doing anything to it or how does that work in terms of this interplay between organic and wild and then i guess the follow-up question to that is why do you guys care about that like why do you why are you committed to getting mm. only the organic fruit mm. um yeah so the the answer to the first question is i i believe that the fruit is wild in that the original plantings happened <laughs> rather than were done you know uh right. going back to sort of the glaciers retreating birds dropping seeds and it happening. So um, they're wild, they, they weren't ever planted, but that doesn't mean that the, the now that the barrens are completely untended. Um, and conventional blueberry growers or raisers uh, are still, well, everyone who's got blueberries um, encounter uh, risks of pests and other things. Um, so most growers, um, do do spray, for instance, with conventional oh. non-organic sprays just to keep pests away, ensure the health oh. of the fruit, etc. Um, even so, though it's just even though it's just a wild growing crop, even though it's a wild growing crop, um, there there are still yeah, there's still you know um, what's the word? I'm coming to like attacks by pests or you know animals will come yeah. and eat it. Yeah, susceptible to any number of of issues that would reduce your crop, end up with, you know, chewed up fruit and all kinds of things oh, like that. So, it's just fascinating to think about. Like generally when you think of wild fruit, you're, you know, it's sort of like allowing that ecosystem to have its balance and and you get whatever comes out of it. I've, this is the, a, I'm, I don't know, there's something really interesting about this crossover where it is a wild ecosystem, but it's being actively tended. Yeah, it's a good uh, point. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, go yeah. on. Uh, no, no. So it's fine. So the growers we work with are certified organic. They're certified by, you know, every state has its organic certification body. Um, they're right. certified by mains. And um, I guess there are some allowed sprays um, of the growers we work with. I think one grower, if absolutely pushed by, you know, that season's vagaries, um, they will use an allowed, you know, an allowed organic spray. Um, but for the most part, even they don't. And so there's just a lot of close attention. There's this other sort of fascinating aspect of uh, wild blueberry barrens, which is that any given field only produces fruit every other year. And in huh. the year that it doesn't produce, it is almost always burned like in a, in a controlled human originating burn. Um, and that does a lot to, to mitigate some of the, you know, pests and other things. So, so huh. they all, they all, they all burn and, you know, pay a lot of close attention <clears throat> and do, you know, all the practices that I guess organic growers of any uh, actually, you know, agricultural crop would need to pay attention to. Um, so, so wild, wild. That it got there, without humans starting at all, but not wild in that humans don't pay attention now. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I said, that's wild. And I was like, well, that's, mm, yeah, yeah. Um, that's wild. Uh, 
it's <laughs> are these practices ones that have been learned from the indigenous folk who were there originally intended these things originally i mean were these kind of controlled burns part of a food system that predated uh the colonial like european colonialism yeah definitely the the native americans burned burned fields yes for sure um that's that is just something that i that i'll just chime in on over here about uh, getting back to your question about why are we organic and like yeah. you know exactly how important that is to mm, us yeah. there is certainly and i guess going way back to the beginning talking about the market that we all worked at I think something that we learned there is that organic certification does not necessarily mean, you know, best practices. And it certainly a lack of organic certification does not mean that it's not a sustainably raised um, and cultivated product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while we do have the organic certification now and are working with farms that are organic certified, that's not necessarily something that in the future I think we'll always strictly adhere to. Like, I think there are, there certainly are farms. And in fact, like up North, the Passamaquoddy blueberry, um, the Passamaquoddy tribe does cultivate a lot of blueberries and grow blueberries themselves, but aren't organically certified despite, I think the, the science being out there that they do have (laughs) very sustainable practices and use. Um, And so I think that's a conversation that always has to be had, you know, like between us as we grow, um, you know, we want to support growers that are like stewards of the land. And that looks a lot of different ways and doesn't always necessarily carry the label or certification, at least of organic. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So just chime in and put that out there. Yeah, Yeah. we did. Um, I think that, you know, when we originally we're coming to market with a product. We wanted to distinguish ourselves by being certified organic, meaning that we would work with certified organic growers. Um, and in fact, because we add no sulfur, we're, we're not just, it's not just wine made with organically grown fruit. It's an organic wine. That's, you know, we can do that according to federal regulations. Yeah. But, are you, so the winery is certified? It is. Yes. Oh, okay, great. I didn't realize that. So you're you're one of the few. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, but I don't yeah, know that how was... it actually matters in the end. Like, you know, we, we, we talk about it with people, but I don't think people right. say, I'm going to buy your wine because it's organic or the inverse, you know, I'm not going to because it's not. So as Emily, we haven't you know. We have done a focus group. Yeah, yeah exactly. Been, been, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, right. Well, I'd love to hear what the winery certification is like for you guys, if it's a pain in the butt or, or what. I mean, relatively speaking, it's not too bad. I mean, it can be annoying. But Shout out to John at Mazda. <laughs> but our, um, our process, as you alluded to, is pretty simple, considering we're, we are such a simple operation. Uh, right. You're only bringing in one ingredient, and you're adding right. a tiny bit of a single ingredient there isn't a huge amount of um, certification work that has to go on. So we, when we first decided, we were like, okay, we'll buy from organic producers. We didn't originally intend to certify the winery, but then as we came closer to sort of releasing our first vintage, decided that if the farmers who are doing a hell of a lot more work than we are, if they take the time to certify their fields, then we thought it was, it would be a sign of respect to at least take the effort on our side to, 
follow through yeah, I love and that. Really by that's a great that's a really great perspective i really appreciate that yeah and that's it's nice. a, it, it's a bit of work but and yeah it does cost some money uh, there's you know rebates that you get from the federal government for like up to 50 percent or close to 50 percent of it depending on what you spend um so it's a bit of work but we don't actually know if it like they said we don't know if it actually makes a difference on the uh the consumer end but i think we felt it was yeah. an important role well I, I, and this is this is the one thing i would say is like it probably doesn't make that big of a difference when you're pouring for people when you're ta- when you're interfacing pretty directly with consumers but if you're if you get to the point where you are distributing and you're in grocery stores around the nation or just not local where people haven't ever heard of you being able to say you know organic wine on the label could could move the needle for you you know it could you know it, it could put you into a, a class of wines in that store where certain consumers only shop like myself for example um not that i it i you know if i know a vineyard it doesn't have to say organic wine or made with organic grapes on it but in the absence of that knowledge you know i'm going to limit myself to what i can know and sometimes it's just that where you where it's you know a producer is taking the time to get certified and i and i can see that it's made with organic fruit yeah i think all that is is true i think that i mean and we are you know we are distributed in a few other states and like um you know, like we're in, in New York, we're with Zebra Vine. And so obviously right. perspective is on, is on organically grown fruit among a lot of other things. And so there, there was a move there. Like, yeah, if we're going to move it beyond sort of shouting distance, then we need to have, we need to have the message get across um, in, yeah. those, in those clearer ways. But I also think that it's important. There are people like you, as you just described, like, you've already set those criteria for yourself in your buying right. practices. But then there right. are people who have not set those criteria, but I would hope that I could say they have not yet set those criteria for themselves. <laughs> and the more that they encounter wines where they didn't even go in asking for it, but they just see that it is, then they're like, oh, maybe that's something I should learn about and maybe care about more. you know. And I think that happened... Yeah with food to some extent, there's always a sort of early adapters. Um, but, but then there comes a point where it's like, well, now I'm going into, I'm not going into whole foods. I'm just going into sort of an ordinary supermarket, but there's a pretty significant organic section and, oh, it's really not that much more money, or maybe it's not any more money, or maybe I'm willing to pay that extra, you know, 20 cents a pound for broccoli. So then if they're seeing, wine sort of that plays into that as well it's like well you know what this isn't the weird organic section this is just what normal wine is then you know then we start referring to organic farming as conventional and non-organic yeah. farming as wacko you know <laughs> you know that's sort <laughs> right, of a right. multi-year process yeah. but i do think that that's part of what it is for us um, yeah we hope so i mean the, <laughs> your your lips to god's ears as they say um yeah. <laughs> i i mean and then I guess the reality is there are still, you know, like a generation older than you guys, probably people who their introduction to organic wine and, and, and we should say this to be able to say organic wine rather than made with organic uh, grapes or fruit, you can't add sulfite. So it has to be a zero sulfur add. And sadly that led to a lot of, you know, I want to say poor quality wine because I think that's just the truth. But like, if I'm being generous, it's 
wine that didn't meet the expectations of the average consumer. Mm-hmm. And and so organic for a generation of people still means just shitty wine, like just yeah. crappy wine that they don't want to drink. And so there is that, you know, sort of echelon of of the consuming public to deal with as well when you're considering uh, these choices. Yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, that may not be in the places where you're being distributed. If if Zev is your distributor, you know, you're probably not in, you know, Ralph's in Los Angeles or wherever, you know. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, uh, as Emily alluded to earlier, like we're with Zev and we're in shops like that, but we're also sort of relying on tourists <laughs> to some extent. Right. For, you yeah. know, so, like, we have this sort of split or or multifaceted personality we don't have an average buyer personality you know we're trying yeah. to uh appeal to a lot of different or at least you know until, I, until so one I, gets big enough that we don't have to do that anymore and and we've covered some of that but i i do think that that is really a fascinating um dilemma and i if have is there anything that you can say that you haven't said already about that because i think that's really true of uh, you know looking at Looking at New England, you know, especially, um, you know, this is this is farming country. These are this is like rural uh, people who, as you said, have been used to sort of sweet wines and and that sort of tradition of of a conventional style. And more and more, I think some of the most exciting, you know, viticulture and and agriculture and winemaking is happening in New England, and it and it isn't that it you know it is what you guys are doing more in that style. And so you have this, these great coastal markets, but then the local populace and a lot of the tourist, you know, tourism it, it does not share that sort of, uh, you know, New York, Manhattan, uh, natural wine shop vibe. And I mean, have you talked enough about that? Do you have anything else to add about what that, how you guys are thinking about navigating that? Um, hmm. Well, it's interesting because our, um, our distributor in Maine <clears throat> really wants us to go really heavy on the blueberry for our label. They're like, this is, would really help it sell in Maine if you just like made it very obvious that this wine was made with blueberries. So the color <laughs> of the label or put a big blueberry on there. And so, you know, and I talked to her this morning and I was like, you know, it's, it's our ego, but it's just like this balance of like, we want to make something we're proud of and that we believe in and that fits into our life and what we want to drink. But then we also have to sell it. And that means selling to those tourists. And so, like, how do you come, you know, when you're making a label, especially you get this opportunity to sort of make those decisions. And it's hard to, it's hard to, like, get over yourselves. Like, you want to make the label that you want to make. But then the people that are selling it have to sell it. And so it's just a struggle to find that balance, which I don't know if we're, we're so good at, I think. We're trying to make the coolest label we can think of. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what, you know, a blueberry or what somebody from Connecticut who's visiting in the summer will see and say, oh, that's blueberry wine. That's interesting. Yeah, there are all sorts of, it's like, I mean, we even talk about the word wine, you know, and how wine, we think we make a wine that fits into that notion, but it's also like, to what extent are we, do we then bump up against people's as, you know, preconceptions? And they're like, well, this isn't wine, this, you know? So it's like, should we come up with a word that's like cider for wild blueberries? Like, how do we... I, are there I any traditional words? No, no, no. Because okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, yeah, it's like I, I've... Same thing here. Like, I, I work with prickly pears, but there's mm-hmm. like an ancient tradition of using those and it's got lots of different names, you know, going back even into like, 
you know, uh, indigenous Mexican mm-hmm. culture languages. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I wonder if, you know, you, you could sort of embrace some some traditional thing. But Yeah, hmm. but there is a tradition. I think we'll all look back on this time and see how transitional it was, you know, in terms of nomenclature, in terms of style, <laughs> in terms of uh, culture and audience finding and all of that. It's just sort of like, yeah. you know, a lot of things are being blown apart now in really good ways but those yeah. people haven't yet settled back on earth and so it's still a little <laughs> like, you know and i think that in the the thing you know to sort of what dan was saying before like in the end the best decisions we make are the ones we're going to make where we feel proud of it and can stand behind it and not go chasing mm. some some sort yes. of you know possible like market sector and just be like this is who we are this is what this fruit is this is what this place we're from is this is what this wine is and like you know hope Um, yeah no and eventually yeah i mean i i I mean look that's uh, i think there is that yeah i i i would support that i think even though yeah you might confuse certain elements of the the market right now it's sort of like i'm sure you know, champagne was confusing when it was first invented, you know, and that, and now you have like a global megalith of, of that region, you know, and uh, yeah, it just takes time, you know, it just takes, just takes time. And and then people embrace it and it it is, it becomes its own thing. And, and I think, you know, you, you have a culture there that you're working in. Like you said, there's, there's still this massive untapped potential of 99% of the crop. Um, And and yeah, it seems like that that could flourish, and and Maine would be, you know, yeah, I I don't know, so that that would be very cool. I, yeah, we'll see. Is, I, I'm I'm guessing there's a is there an is there a viscosity at all? Like, is it sort of like a this sparkling wine that you guys make? Is there a um, texture to it, or is it pretty light, even though it's got color? Mm. Say it's a bit crunchy. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. With the the acidity being so yeah. high see if 2020 with the high acetic more so but there is definitely like you know there is a, a certain texture that's a little sharper but mm-hmm. um so i wouldn't say viscosity but it, it's more chewable for sure there there okay. the intensity comes in as you're saying the color which is like this deep dark purple in the aromas um and in some of the actual like flavor notes <laughs> but i wouldn't say there's intensity in texture like it, it's not viscous in that way it's more like it's sort of surprisingly light and it really you know it's it i mean it's listed on the label at eight percent alcohol it's probably you know seven point i don't know eight or something it's under eight percent so yeah. it, it doesn't have that that viscosity we should also mention that in addition to arcadia which is that that dry sparkling wine which I guess I would say, if you if you had to do this, I would say is sort of akin to a dry Lambrusco sort of in 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 style. Um, we do make a fortified aromatized wine, um, yeah, based in Americano, which is you know vermouth like. There are technical reasons it's not a vermouth, but it's essentially plays like that. And so that you know we infuse brandy with herbs and spices, and then blend the brandy, and it comes up to twelve percent alcohol. There's more mouthfeel, like more. You know, I don't know. I still don't know if I would use the word viscous, but a rounder mouthfeel in that one. Got it. Yeah. Nice. And that's, I mean, that's not uh, what you think of as a fortified wine alcohol content. So that's still kind of light right. and refreshing, you know, well within like a, a standard wine 
Yeah, exactly. Sounds lovely. Um, You have a proprietary blend of uh, aromatics that you use? We do. That's for that wine that's on the market. I mean, we're, we're happy to disclose the ingredients, but we're also working on other infusions uh, and hoping to nice. broaden that. Um, and yeah. So. Where do you get your brandy? Uh, from out by you. Yeah. It's like right down, I think next door to you actually. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. Yeah, it's uh, what's it called? Wine secrets. Wine secrets. Yeah. It's, it's for the, it's a, you know, business to business for the industry, very high proof. It's like 190 or something. One, yeah, 186 proof, clear, clear brandy. Amazing. Hotsmatch <laughs> shipping to get it over here. <laughs> We'd have loved to have bought locally, but yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it sounds like <laughs> it's like the vodka oh. brandy. I mean, it's super like neutral. Gotcha. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Well, guys, this is, uh, I mean, super informative are, are there any closing things that you'd like to say and if you know or just you know let let everybody know where we can find out more about you mm, uh r-a-s-w-i-n-e-s.com com. <laughs> just doing the spelling of course we're on instagram at r-e-s underscore wine yeah if you search r-e-s wines yeah you'll find you'll us find us there yeah um, and then, yeah, if you live in uh, New York, Massachusetts, Vermont, uh, you can find us pretty Maine. S- and Maine also. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and pretty soon we're actually trying to work on more national distribution. So we've got a number of things coming up soon, I think. Yeah. Uh, other other places. Um, and the shameless plug, you can buy our wines on our website. Yeah, true. true. <laughs> the other yes, thing I, I noticed that, that, yes. that, you know, we did mention it, but we do... <laughs> just totally by luck feel ourselves to be part of this growing community of you know non-conventional um fermented beverage producers um and uh you know specifically i just want to say a huge thank you to jade marley who has along with some some very strong um partners of hers come up with this abv anything the vinifera group there was a a session we were a part of in New York. There's going to be another one in Miami in January. And so um, all kinds of people out there where we're loosely associated with, we're going to be a sort of traveling road show, maybe coming to a town near you sometime soon. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, thanks guys well, very thank much. much for all your time and questions. And thank attention. you very much. Yeah. The sponsor for this episode is Centralis Wine. Centralis is an ecological winery that I started to protect or benefit the environment and my community with every business and winemaking decision. I envision a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. Centralis wines feature foraged prickly pears, urban perennial polyculture wine garden produced grapes and other fruit, gleanings from urban fruit trees, dry farmed century old vines, and organic and biodynamic viticulture. If this sounds interesting to you, join our email list or wine club at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com.